These are Nebraska corn farmers. They work in acres, not hours, harvesting the energy and climate solutions the world needs. We are proud to stand with you. The success of tomorrow's soy industry depends on the actions we take today. The future is here, and the time to move is now. Market Journal Television for Agricultural Business Decisions is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources in partnership with the Nebraska Rural Radio Association. Promotional support provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine and partial funding provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Hi again, everyone. I'm Bryce Duskitin. and thanks so much for joining us today on Market Journal. On behalf of our entire team, we sincerely hope you had an enjoyable Christmas. As we get ready to ring in the new year, we are going to spend our time today looking back on the year that it was in 2023. Mr. Weather himself, Eric Hunt, is also going to be stopping by to give us an extended winter outlook. We'll get to that coming up here in a few moments, but first, let's begin here. We kicked off 2023 with a trip out to Portland, Oregon. We were there in the Pacific Northwest to cover the 2023 Wheat Marketing and Export Workshop, which was hosted by the Wheat Marketing Center. During our time in the Portland area, we got an up-close and personal look at one of the unsung heroes of the wheat distribution chain, tugboats. These boats, they play a pretty critical role when it comes to moving massive amounts of grain. The Shaver Transportation Company has been working on the Columbia Snake River system for more than a century now, and we got an inside look at their operation. For nearly a century and a half, Shaver Transportation has served the Columbia Snake River system. Founded by George W. Shaver in 1880, the Shaver family continues to own and manage the business to this day, making it the oldest continually operating family-owned tugboat company on the West Coast. Since its inception, Shaver has grown into a regional tug and barge company with a fleet of 15 tugs and 20 barges, making this company a formidable player in the wheat export market. Uh, it, it's, it's a valuable role ourselves as well as, as the other uh, providers of service here on the Columbia Snake River system. Um, as you're aware, the Columbia River port system is number one in wheat exports uh, in the United States. 60% of the wheat comes by rail, a lot of it uh, railed from the Midwest. 40% of it comes by barge from the inland northwest, and that's where Shaver Transportation comes in, is we provide the barge service along with other services here on the river uh, for the Inland Empire uh, farm-producing families uh, that are exporting their wheat to the Pacific Rim. When it comes to having a competitive edge in the shipping industry, barges are the quickest and cheapest way to move grain to export terminals in terms of how much grain can be moved per gallon of diesel fuel. In short, barge shipping is one of the most reliable and environmentally friendly options for grain shipment. The competitive edge is this. In ton miles per gallon of diesel uh, consumed for the shipment of cargoes, Trucks are about 151 miles. Rail does an excellent job at 475 miles to move a ton of cargo with a gallon of diesel. Inland barging, 675. So the competitive edge is we are the most fuel efficient, most uh, environmentally responsible way to move cargo. We're also the least expensive because you have 
not only barge companies competing within their own group of, of uh, transportation areas, but you have barge lines competing with rail. And when barge and rail compete, shippers win. During our time at Shaver Transportation, we were given the opportunity to take a trip down the river on one of their tugboats. When it comes time to get those barges on the move, tugboats like this are a big part of getting those grain shipments from point A to point B. Oh, that boat's got a great history. Uh, the boat is the uh, Lincoln. It was built in 2015. We acquired it in 2017. Uh, it is uh, a purpose-built upriver barge boat. So it's not built for going in the ocean, not built for ship assist services. Uh, it is built to hook up solidly to a barge tow of about 485,000 bushels of wheat. That would be four barges. And to push those barges empty upriver to get loaded and then to corral them and bring them all back downriver. Considering the amount of grain being shipped at any given time, the tugboat crews manning the ships for shaver transportation will spend an entire week on duty to ensure their shipment is successful. While the job itself is a tireless one, Rob tells us there are several factors that make his job highly enjoyable. What do I like about my job? Uh, I like the interaction with, uh, uh, with the maritime community. I like the interaction with the agricultural community. Uh, I like the fact that it's always a new day uh, in maritime, uh, whether you're dealing with ships or barges or uh, uh, any of the above. Uh, there is always something new. It isn't, it isn't a static industry in that respect, and, uh, and I like that. As much as Rob loves his job, he was quick to remind us that the work he and his co-workers do, in many ways, rests on the shoulders of agricultural production here in the Midwest. And for that hard work, he's very grateful. We are thankful for all of the agriculture that the Midwest produces that ends up being shipped out here to the West. Yes, a lot of it ends up down the Mississippi River system, but an awful lot of it also ends up by rail out here, and you are helping support thousands of jobs out here on the West Coast U.S., specifically here in the Columbia River District with, uh, with terminals, with tug lines, uh, with rail, uh, and with all manner of associated services what you do in Nebraska makes a difference to us out here. For six generations now, the Shaver family has strived to provide innovative and money-saving services in the worldwide maritime community. From what we were able to see during our short time there, it seems safe to say they will continue to do so for the next several generations. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Bill Dodd. <laughs> A sincere thank you to the folks at Shaper Transportation for giving us their time while we were out in the Pacific Northwest. On a personal note, driving the tugboat was certainly an item to cross off the old bucket list. That was a great way to start the new year. Let's spring forward now to the growing season. Just a few miles outside the city limits in Lincoln, there is a research facility that has a rich history. For more than 75 years, Rogers Memorial Farm has been instrumental in the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's hands-on agricultural research. This no-till research farm grows corn, soybeans, sorghum, as well as wheat. We're able to get an inside look at how this farm is helping to propel agricultural research at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Just a few miles east of Lincoln, Nebraska, stands a farm with an inconspicuous old white barn on about 320 acres of land with a diverse crop selection. This farm is staffed with only one full-time position. Stuart Hoff serves as the research farm manager here. While this site is a testament to the benefits of no-till farming, 
Stewart tells us, it's evolved a great deal since his initial experience on the property, thanks in part to much of the work of his colleague, Paul Yassa. Uh, originally, I was a student in the mid-1980s under Mark Schroeder, the farm manager at that time. Uh, at that time, the farm was mostly a tillage farm. Um, did mostly corn, some corn, uh, soybeans was the majority, and wheat was the majority of the crops at the farm at that time. Then in the 1990s, early 1990s, I became full-time for the department at that time, and uh, Mark Schroeder uh, moved the farm into a no, full no-till after seeing what was done with uh, plots that uh, uh, Albert Dickey and Paul Yasser were doing, and he also incorporated that into the other ground that the department had at the ENAREC facility up at Mead. Paul Yasa, who was recently recognized for his contributions to no-till farming, has spent several years at Rogers Memorial Farm. He tells us while his work here has enhanced his extension education programs for farmers around the state, the farm has also been utilized by groups such as NRCS and the Ag Research Service. Well, at the Rogers Memorial Farm, I've been working there for a large number of years, and it's a, sort of a trial proving ground for me, and it actually adds a lot to my extension programs, because when I go out and talk to producers, then I've actually been doing it in the field myself, and that's one of the beauties of the farm. It's allowed me to try a lot of things to take out to producers. Well, when it comes to Rogers Memorial Farm being a host to other groups coming out, ARS, uh, the Ag Research Service, had a set of plots out there that uh, they ran for 40 years comparing uh, different tillage systems for corn and soybean production. And uh, it's the kind of thing where they were taking some in-depth measurements in the field, uh, in the soil itself, the kind of thing that an extension engineer doesn't do. And so again, it added a lot to the database on tillage systems. Now, NRCS, uh, we're twofold there. One is they've used us as a training site. We've conducted the national training for uh, all the NRCS new employees 2016 until COVID shut us down in 2020. But uh, every new employee came in for a three-week class in Lincoln and spent about five days or parts of five days out at the farm where they could actually see the practices we are using to see, actually see how soils improve. Since its inception, Rogers Memorial Farm has evolved into a self-sustaining triumph of no-till farming practices. Planting and harvesting on the property are generally overseen by Stuart and Paul. The profits from commodity sales generated by the crops raised by Paul and Stuart are the main source of revenue that keep this operation running. Uh, we raise soybeans, corn, sorghum, and uh, wheat, winter wheat on the farm. We don't have a lot of storage. We can store about 12,000 bushels on the farm. So I'm contracting some soybeans off the farm before we harvest. And so I got room to put the, all the remaining soybeans in the bin for later sales. Um, I maneuver things around, so corn goes in another bin. Uh, for year, last 10 years, up until last year, I was raising white corn because it was a, had a market premium over yellow, then the markets flipped. So I moved over and produced less corn, mostly for plot areas and put in more sorghum because I kind of seen the drought coming. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to push, uh, push more of that on the farm again, so. This forward-thinking operation truly is a realistic setting for the future of agriculture, which is trending towards smaller operations globally. As the Rogers Memorial Farm operation looks to future partnerships and more robotic innovations hitting their fields, 
Paul and Stewart are certain that this research facility will continue to lead local and national farming practices well into the future. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Bill Dodd. The rows of the no-till plots found out of Rogers Memorial Farm continue to stand as a lasting testament to the no-till farm for more than 43 years now. There's some pretty cool things happening out there not far from Lincoln. If you'd like to learn more about that farm, head on over to the Market Journal website. From spring to summer now, utilizing good stockmanship techniques can improve your animal comfort, provide safety, and even help your bottom line. One name that is synonymous with stockmanship around the United States is Kurt Pate. This past summer, Nebraska Extension held their annual grazing conference out in Kearney. During that event, Kurt, along with other Extension educators, gave it 10 days a live, hands-on stockmanship demonstration. And you bet, Market Journal was there to bring you this story. My focus today is going to be on pasture handling and settling and working through a, a design like this. So um, I want you guys to ask a lot of questions, challenge our clinicians, and uh, I think uh, I think you'll at the end of the day be really pleased with, with some of the things that you picked up today. Yeah, animals, cattle, horses, sheep, goats, whatever we're grazing, they're a thinking, feeling, breathing animal. And we as humans, if we can understand that, understand their world and the things that make them tick and get them to do things for us through proper pressure, then we have a relationship with the animal that's positive, both in a human standpoint, the animal standpoint, and quality of life for everybody, the consumer included. I'm gonna, I'm gonna approach these cattle at an angle that I think is appropriate to get them to go to their, le to their left, my right, our right, and they're gonna go down and hook up with these other cattle. There, now you see, we got, we got movement started. See, we got movement started here with the cattle. I'll let them move on. We gave them a little hesitation. We have the other cattle coming in. So we'll just let them have a moment to move away from our pressure. We continue to have increased focus on stockmanship. As Kurt said, it's not necessarily more important now than it ever was, but we haven't taught it and groomed it um, in the same way that we did generationally before. So our workforce has changed and it's really important to make sure that we're continuing to intentionally provide opportunities to increase our skill set in this space. If I keep my body moving back and forth like this, that, that doesn't create near as much pressure as yelling or slapping my arms or something, but it just creates a nice pressure. We'll get some movement started. We really don't care what direction they're gonna go. We don't want them to go back that way, but we'll try to just get some movement started where they all just string out and, and feel like they can walk away from this water. One of the things that I wanted to touch on is space, right? So there are guidelines, um, ag guidelines related to the square foot allowance per animal when we think about either building corrals or putting up portable corrals. That's gonna be driven a little bit, obviously, by size of the animal. Ag guidelines say that we want an average square footage allowance in a corral of 15 to 20 square feet. The demonstration today was pretty much about handling cattle in a pasture grazing system and bring them to the corral low stress and get them in the corral in a way that when we work the cattle, they'll accept whatever we're giving them, whether it be medications, vaccinations, 
anything that we're doing with them, they'll get better every time we do it, put them in the corral, and then whatever we're doing to them works, and they get better each time we do it. A lot of folks think that just because you shake it a bucket and the cattle come to you, that they're, they're gentle. And they are gentle, but as soon as you change the routine and apply pressure, they get nervous or scared or, or they won't work for you. So getting the, having the ability to drive an animal and having them understanding pressure and moving away from pressure and then learning from the release of pressure, that is a much, that was a, a very good method along with the total drawing. An animal's mind can only be one place at a time. So if they're only thinking about the feed, they're not thinking about your pressure. They're thinking about getting that feed. So they really don't learn from the situation, they learn from the feed. So we're trying to teach animals to take pressure and work better from it. You go ahead and leave us out. If you missed out on this year's annual grazing conference, don't worry, you'll have another opportunity coming up in 2024. Learn about that upcoming event by visiting the Nebraska Extension calendar. Well, this is certainly one of the hot topics of 2023. About 800,000 acres, or roughly 1.6% of Nebraska land is owned or controlled through leases by foreign entities. With interest growing across the nation about foreign control and ownership of ag land, two University of Nebraska experts looked at the risks and benefits of foreign ownership. They also talked about the movement in Nebraska's unicameral to update a law that was passed all the way back in 1889 to better monitor and control who owns land here in the Cornhusker state. You can learn more about this issue coming up in the January issue of the Nebraska Farmer. What well, is now time to check in on weather with Nebraska Extension Ag Climatologist and Market Journal Chief Meteorologist Eric Hunt. Eric, I understand you're going to give us an extended winter outlook today. How are things shaping up in the months ahead? Well, thanks, Bryce. One of the things I like looking for in extended forecasts is I like to look at the Madden-Julian Oscillation, or the MGO. Madden-Julian Oscillation is naturally occurring convection in the, or basically in the tropics from eastern Africa into the western Pacific. And the phase number is corresponding with the geographic location. So as we head into January, we are looking at being in phase two and into phase three. And phase two during an El Nino year tends to mean lower geopotential heights across a lot of North America, or at least certainly the continental United States. The meteorology and English translation is that this tends to be a stormier pattern uh, for a lot of the U.S. So that might mean that we might actually have some uh, more robust storms moving in the central U.S. or the northeastern U.S. Again, this is not a guarantee, uh, but just based on past history, this is what's tend to happen. Uh, so again, we've had a little bit of a stormier pattern here in the last part of December, and it's possible that that will continue through the month of January. Uh, and again, the CPC is actually relatively bullish on precipitation across California and heading into Nebraska, uh, certainly across the southeast, a little bit drier than average across the Great Lakes. Uh, in terms of temperatures, again, this is relatively very strongly tied toward El Nino, uh, warmer than average across the northern U.S. with relatively average conditions across the uh, southern portion of the United States. In terms of drought outlook, uh, again, this was just released uh, on Thursday, December 21st. So again, it is showing that drought persisting across the eastern portion of Nebraska where drought currently is. Now, I think this literally is true, but I think that we are likely to see some uh, improvement uh, across eastern Nebraska this winter. Uh, we're not going to eradicate it, but I definitely think we are going to see some improvement. Uh, 
Now, in terms of the insole forecast, El Nino is very likely to stick around through the spring. We are probably about its peak right now, heading into early January. And I think as we head into the spring and early summer, we're likely to head into neutral conditions. And there's even a chance as we head into you know, the mid late portion of summer that we will go into La Nina. Now, again, this is not a guarantee, uh, but that is certainly a possibility as we head into the summer. Uh, again, all the different models are basically showing El Nino is getting near its peak. Uh, and we'll start trending down toward neutral or maybe slight weak La Nina conditions as we head into the summer. Uh, in terms of composites, now the years where we've had an El Nino uh, basically peak in midwinter uh, in recent times, 2016, 2010, 2003, 1998. So for composite purposes, generally not much signal here in precipitation for the, uh, Nebraska or most of the central U.S. Uh, a bit warmer than average, but maybe not quite as warm as December. So I think we will still be mild for the rest of the winter. Uh, but there will be chances of more cold as I think we head in January, February. And I think I really pay attention to anything that might happen with the polar vortex is later in January. There's a possibility February could be kind of cold for a period of time. A quick look at the spring. Uh, springs after a peak of El Nino have tended to be relatively wet across most of Nebraska, particularly uh, the eastern two-thirds of the state, uh, and also relatively warm. Uh, so I, I don't think we're going to have a repeat of the spring of 2023 in eastern Nebraska. Thanks. Back to you, Bryce. All righty. Thank you very much for that update, Eric. We appreciate it. Earlier this year, a Husker team was chosen to compete in a robotics challenge. The robotics competition highlighted the exceptional innovation and technical expertise of students from universities all across the United States. Nebraska wound up walking away with one of the top honors for their efforts in designing and creating what they call the Husker Bot. Market Journal was able to catch up with some of those competitors to talk about their experience creating the Husker Bot and competing in that big national robotics challenge. Students at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln are building the future of the agriculture industry. With the guidance of Santosh Pitla, an associate professor in the Biological Systems Engineering Department, a team of eight students participated in a farm robotics challenge to create the Huskerbot that would go on and win the prize for complexity in design. The farm robotics challenge is uh, aimed at uh, helping uh, smallholder farmers with uh, technology solutions. Um, so whether it can be you know, harvesting or weed management or many other value-add uh, operations that are really hard to do you know, with labor. So. The team was invited to participate in the first year of the competition by the Farm Robotics Challenge Organizing Committee and received the base robot platform from FarmNG to create their final piece. We made uh, a lot of modifications to it so that we can do targeted spot spraying of the weeds. So, so we did the gantry on it that helps move the, uh, our nozzle that actually sprays the weed, you know, uh, laterally so that uh, when it identifies a weed, you know, it, it, it is going to move on the gantry to that position and spray only there. So we did all the hardware, the software and the AI that is behind that, you know, and also we installed cameras to help identify the weeds. With a complex challenge at hand, the team faced other challenging obstacles, such as the availability of weeds along with a short turnaround time. They challenged them, hey, we don't have the robot, that's true, but what can we do even before we get the robot here, right? So I think we spent a lot of time on image data collection of the weeds 
Okay. And then once, as soon as we got the robot, we were like, okay, let's uh, install the gantry system and the camera system. Um, and there are many challenges with developing the software itself. You know, we developed our own software, but then how do we integrate that onto the robot? So a lot of time went into that. With a drive to find solutions to innovate weed management, the team needed a variety of individuals with a variety of skills and knowledge. The opportunity to work on an interdisciplinary team left a lasting impression on the team's participants. In the future, we have to uh, work systems like develop systems where we work interdisciplinary and there are huge challenges in front of us, for example, herbicide resistance and uh, uh, not only one single person can overcome that. this, we need uh, interdisciplinary uh, teams and uh, I would highly appreciate Dr. Santosh Pitlar's effort to bring everybody together and I would encourage everybody uh, to be on these interdisciplinary teams because there's a lot of learning that happens when you're on these teams. The UNL team proved how bringing together individuals to create an interdisciplinary team can create success and prove the presence of robotics in Midwestern agriculture. In a way, uh, robotics is underrepresented in Midwestern agriculture, uh, because traditionally a lot of robotics in agriculture has been done in East Coast and West Coast where you have high value crops, right? But, uh, but it's important to know that today, you know, if you want to manage weeds, uh, we need robotics, robotic solutions. And, and uh, winning this competition kind of shows that uh, at UNL, we have robotic, good robotics program now, and then we're able to bring agriculture and robotics together. With claiming the prize for complexity and design, the Huskerbot will be showcased at the FIRA USA 2023, among other robots from all over the world to show the innovation of robotics within agriculture. Congratulations once again to those students. It's always fun to see what kind of ideas are being brought to life right out of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Well, that is about all the time we have for this week's broadcast. Before we go, I want to tell you that next week we'll be diverting a bit from our usual programming to focus on an academic program here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln that is helping students get on a path to entrepreneurship. Also, before we wrap up, I want to say thank you for making time to spend some of your time, I should say, with us here on Market Journal. Here's a few of our favorite moments and photos over the past year. It has certainly been a great year, and thank you again for allowing us to bring you this program. We will see you back here in 2024. Until then, I'm Bryce Tuskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.